Well, thank you very much, Mariana. I was uh, struck this morning again by the, the richness of the cultural diversity of our fellowship. What a great thing it is. May God continue to bless us in this particular aspect of our church life together for many years to come. Well, won't you please keep your Bibles open at Joshua chapter 3 and I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. The Apostle Paul says that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written to teach us so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved this marvellous story in Joshua 3 that we as New Testament Christians might have hope. And so we come expectantly to your word this morning and we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would send us away from this text full of hope according to your promise. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if I had to select uh, just one verse to get us going, uh, it would be verse 13, uh, where Joshua says to the Israelites, and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Well, a few years ago, uh, Christianity Today magazine featured a, a cartoon on this particular event and it showed four priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant uh, approaching the Jordan River in full flood. And uh, one priest in the cartoon turns to his friend and with a look of terror on his face he says this, did you stop to think how silly we're going to look if Joshua is wrong? Well, we smile about that, but of course at some level we can all identify with it. After all, uh, the Lord Jesus says to us, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And so we go. But then we discover that actually, on balance, the nations aren't really all that interested in becoming disciples. Most people don't want to be baptised and they certainly don't want to obey the Lord Jesus. Worse than that, many of them are openly hostile to Christ and his people and the opposition looks as overwhelming to us as a river in flood. And so we ask, was the Lord Jesus wrong about this? Did we hear him correctly? Is he really with us? Or perhaps a bit closer to home, we're secretly discouraged about where we are right now in our personal Christian discipleship. Uh, it might perhaps be a lack of love towards our brothers and sisters at church. Uh, maybe, if the truth is known, our hearts have grown just a little bit cold towards them. 
Or perhaps we, we no longer really want to read the Bible as we did at first. And if we're honest with ourselves, uh, Bible reading has become more of a duty than a delight. Or maybe it's a, a sinful habit that's kept us bound for years and we just can't seem to break free from it. Now, in our minds, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul says that the Christian, every Christian, is a new creation, uh, that the Holy Spirit generates a new nature in the believer's life. But right now, this morning, the flaws in our personality seem to us to be the only reality. So we ask, was Paul wrong? Well, uh, on these matters and more, the passage we're looking at this morning is full of great encouragement and tremendous comfort. Uh, It teaches us things about God that will refresh and renew even the most jaded and discouraged believer. But in order to see the treasure, we've got to start by putting the text in its context. You see, Joshua chapter 3 is actually the climax of the entire Bible story so far. 400 years before, God made a promise to Abraham saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. Genesis chapter 12 verse 7. And of course that promise wasn't just about a piece of real estate in the Middle East. No, the land was to be the place where the people of God enjoyed the presence of God, the protection of God, the provision of God permanently. We saw that, didn't we, in our first study a couple of weeks ago. And everything from Genesis chapter 12 onwards has been all about getting the people of God into the land. And now it's about to happen. So this is an absolutely huge moment not only in Israel's history, but in the history of the human race. And so for that reason, the writer slows the action down so that we don't miss anything. He's saying to us, my dear friend, the crossing of the Jordan is history. This isn't a myth. This isn't a fairy story. This is our God at work on behalf of his people. So read the sacred text carefully. Now in order to do that, you need to know that chapters 3 and 4 belong together as a unit. And these two chapters have been written in a particular Hebrew style. There are actually three sections dealing with the crossing of the Jordan and the placing of the memorial stones, which we'll look at next Sunday, God willing. And each section follows the same pattern. So first of all, uh, God takes the initiative, giving his commandment and his promise to Joshua. And then Joshua passes on the word of the Lord to the people, informing them of what God is about to do. And then the writer describes the fulfilment 
of God's promise. And at the end of each section, there's a summary which looks back to God's fulfilment and which also looks forward to the next stage in God's gracious provision. Now, I I say that to you because if you feel at times that these two chapters are rather repetitive, well, that's the reason why. The writer is underlining what's already happened and he's inviting us to pay very careful attention to the amazing things that God is about to do next. So this morning, we're focusing on chapter 3, And I think it will help us if we look at it under three headings and you'll find these on the inside of the bulletin you were given when you arrived at church. So in the first six verses, we see the people of God preparing for a miracle. Preparing for a miracle. Verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. So here we see the entire nation moving to the edge of the barrier that stood between them and the promised land. Now let's not underestimate the challenge that they faced. The Jordan, you see, wasn't a babbling brook. They couldn't simply take off their sandals and paddle across. No, the Jordan was in flood, it was a swirling flood that had already overflowed its banks. And even at the easiest crossing places, it was at least 10 to 12 feet deep. So you see, what they were facing here was an impossible obstacle. I suppose some of the men might have been able to to swim across, perhaps the the spies did that as we saw last week in chapter 2. But here we're talking about the entire nation of Israel. And scholars say that at this point they numbered around two and a half million people. And you see, if God's promise was going to be fulfilled, somehow this vast multitude had to get across a swollen torrent in order to enter the promised land. And so they moved to the edge of of the river. But there was still no word from God. In verse 1, they have no idea how this is going to happen. They just take the next logical step forward in obedience to God and they, they wait. They wait quietly for God to do something amazing. Now, no doubt the report from the spies must have been a great encouragement. We saw at the end of chapter 2, verse 24, that the spies said, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, that would surely have encouraged them to go forward, but they still had no idea how God was going to work. And one writer makes a very helpful comment about this. He says this, God often opens his hands one finger at a time. Now that's what's happening here. God is opening his hand one finger at a time. And that's because it's enough for us to see the next step 
and then to trust God for more light when we need it. So, here are the people camped by the Jordan, verse 2. After three days, the officers went through the camp giving orders to the people. So, the people had to wait three days by the Jordan before they received any further instructions. Now, that's a reminder to us, you see, that faith is often expressed in patient waiting. You see, it's not our job to try and guess what God is going to do. We're not to agonise over how God's going to keep his promises. No, faith takes all of our anxieties, all of our cares, and leaves them with God. Faith says... God has taken responsibility both for my future and for every step ahead of me. He is my God and he's committed himself to me and I know that his power is limitless. But at this stage, I just don't know how he's going to use it. But I do know that he will find a way through, even if I can't see it now. You see, my dear friends, Christians are people who should be prepared for God to work in astonishing and marvellous ways. But there are three key ingredients in Israel's preparation here that are instructive for us this morning because we're apt to forget them. You see, Israel's preparation wasn't passive. And first of all, we need to learn that preparing for God to work means submission to him. Come with me to verse 3. The officers gave orders to the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. Now, what on earth is that all about? Well, you see, the ark was the symbol of the presence of the Lord. As you know, it was a a small box that was covered with gold, and it contained the Ten Commandments, which was the covenant of God with his people. The covenant, of course, revealed God's character and his will and his promises. So the ark symbolised the presence of the living God in the midst of his people. And that's why the ark is mentioned no less than ten times in chapter 3 and a further seven times in chapter 4. You see, we're being reminded that as Israel faced this impossible barrier, God was with them. So the people were to follow the Lord's leadership. When you see the ark being carried, verse 4, then you will know which way to go. So can you see, the people were not to look at the river, they were not to look at one another, They were to look 
at the ark. When you see the ark, follow it. And then verse 4 says that they also had to keep their distance, a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Don't go near it. Now the reason for the distance is probably not so much to do with the, the awesome holiness of God. There are other texts that connect that with the ark. That may be part of it, but it's not the main reason. Rather, it was so that everybody would have a grandstand view of the amazing thing that God was about to do. As I said a moment ago, we're talking about two and a half million people here and it was vital for their faith that everybody could see what was about to happen. You know, just as the the crowds at Newlands need to keep off the pitch and stay in the grandstand so that everybody can actually see the game... So Israel needed to keep their distance from the ark so everybody could see the astonishing thing that was about to occur. They they had to wait. They had to submit. And then there's another requirement in verse 5 which is that the people had to consecrate themselves. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now this consecration wasn't just an external thing, uh, washing themselves and staying off the food and all that kind of thing. It meant setting apart their whole hearts and their whole lives for God's exclusive use. That's what consecration means. And in Israel's case, it meant a deliberate dedication to following the Lord's instructions as soon as they were given and to realising that if they were ever going to get across this impossible barrier that lay in front of them, it would only be by the grace of God. So can you see that in these three days they were given time to get their relationship with God right and real before they went forward? And friends, you see, if you and I are wanting God to guide us, if we're looking for his help, there has to be a consecration to him and a commitment to going his way. Otherwise, why are we asking him to guide us? And I want us to think about this because God gives us so many wonderful promises in Scripture. And as we discover these promises, we we see, as it were, that the promised land lying ahead of us. But sometimes, isn't it the truth that we also see a great Jordan between us and the fulfilment of the promise? And one of the things that we learn from this text is that the way into the experience of God's blessing tomorrow is through the consecration of our lives to him today. We need to trust him to lead us into whatever he's promised. So there had to be submission, there had to be consecration, and thirdly, in verse 6, there had to be obedience. In verse 6, Joshua says to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. 
Now again, um, they weren't told at this stage how God would work, but they obeyed. Their questions weren't actually answered until the ark was on their shoulders. That's quite striking, isn't it? But they had no need to fear because they knew what the ark meant. It meant that God was with them. Much of their preparation was done in the dark. They didn't know what was going to happen next. But they were willing to obey because they believed that the Lord of all the earth knows best and that he was with them. So they were willing to do his will. Now friends, if we want to see God doing amazing things in our generation, in our church life, and in our Christian lives, friends, there is a price to pay. You see, it doesn't happen just like that. And the preparation that is required is to be a part of our daily discipleship. We've got to prepare for it. And it's the preparation of active submission to the Lord. It's a preparation of consecrating our lives for his exclusive use. And it's a preparation of detailed obedience to his word. Now that's the first thing that we learn from Joshua 3, preparing for a miracle. But then secondly, in verses 7 to 13, we see the people understanding God's ways. Understanding God's ways. Now you see, in this section, uh, we're given a glimpse behind the scenes to see the purpose of God in this extraordinary event. And God's purpose is mentioned twice in the text. First, you'll find it at the end of verse 7. End of verse 7. So they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And then at the beginning of verse 10, it said again, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. So God is going to part the floodwaters of the Jordan, of course, to get them into the promised land, yes, of course. But there's more to it than that. It's to increase the people's trust in him. So you think about this with me for a moment. God could have brought them across the Jordan River in the dry season when it was very easy for them to get across, they could have taken off their sandals and paddled through. But God decided otherwise. He decided to bring them to the Jordan at the time when it was the most difficult to get across. His plan was that for them to be face to face with an impossible barrier. Why? Because God's top priority is to develop and nurture and grow a relationship of trust between us and him. So just as Moses was exalted in Israel when God made a way through the Red Sea, so now God says in verse 7 
that he's going to do the same thing for Joshua by by making a way through the Jordan into the land of promise. I find this rather marvellous because it means that the, the miracle that brought them out of Egypt was the same miracle that took them into the promised land. There will be another parting of the waters so that their confidence in the leadership of Joshua will be increased as they see God at work. And the people will see God at work fulfilling his promises as they obey the commandments given through Joshua. So, Joshua and the priests are given further instructions in verse 8, which is actually the next step of what they need to know. The Lord here is speaking to Joshua and he says, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And having heard the word of the Lord, Joshua's job is then to pass it on to the people, verse 10. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out the nations before you. So can you see that the purpose of the miracle wasn't simply to get them into the land. No, it was to teach them the essential principle that the same supernatural power that gets them across the river will conquer the land and will make it their possession. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. And that makes all the difference. Um, There are seven tribes listed in verse 10 and they were all powerful, warlike people. So Israel knew perfectly well that crossing the Jordan was the first step towards conflict. But you see, what God is saying is that it's actually the first step towards victory. I'm going to drive out these nations before you and I'm going to prove my power to do it by getting you across the river in this extraordinary way. Now we just need to pause on this for a moment and let me say just a quick word about the conquest. We're going to say more about this in later talks. But you see, driving out the nations was an act of God's judgment. God had told Abraham and his descendants that they would return to the land when the sins of the Amorites had reached their full measure. And by this time, witchcraft and occult practice and sexual immorality were everywhere in Canaan. The sins of the people had reached their full measure. They couldn't go any further away from God than they already were. So can you see that the conflict in which Israel were about to be engaged was not primarily with flesh and blood. It was with spiritual forces of evil that were controlling 
the inhabitants of the land. But God had good purposes for the land. And because of God's good purposes and because of his sovereign power, the waters of the Jordan will flee at his command. So you see, the people are being taught in these chapters to trust the unstoppable power of God. And it's very interesting, you know, as you read on through the next two or three chapters in Joshua, that the accent is entirely on what God does. The people actually do very little. They submit, they consecrate themselves and they obey, but God does all the heavy lifting. And of course, that's the way ahead in the Christian life today, isn't it? You see, you and I look at the impossible barriers in our lives and we say, Lord, I can't possibly get through this. And the Lord says, no, of course you can't. What do you think I'm here for? I'm going to get you through, but what you've got to do is really trust my power. Not just sing hymns about it in church on Sunday, not just talk about it to your Christian friends in the home group on Wednesday night, but in the practical issues of everyday life, You've got to say, I'm going to trust the Lord. He's committed to me. The seas and the rivers are all under his control. And if he can get an entire nation of two and a half million people across a river in flood, well, he can certainly deal with my barriers. So I'm going to trust him. John Calvin has a marvellous comment on this text. He says this, quote, The title, Lord of all the earth, here applied to God, is not insignificant, but extols his power above all the elements of nature, in order that the Israelites, considering how seas and rivers are subject to his dominion, might have no doubt that the waters, though naturally liquid, would become stable and solid in obedience to his word. I find that rather marvellous, don't you? Water becoming stable and solid. See, this is our God, isn't it? This is our God. And everything depends upon his presence. Verse 11. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And you see, if he goes into the Jordan first, well, we've got nothing to worry about, have we? Have we? Well, so far we've discovered that this chapter describes the people of God preparing for a miracle and understanding God's ways. And now comes the climax in verses 14 to 17, where we see God's people experiencing the impossible. I want you to try and picture the scene in your mind for a moment. In verses 14 and 15, the twelve priests uh, are approaching the river. 
They're carrying the ark on their shoulders, but there's still no slowing of the floodwaters. Just imagine them standing there. No doubt there are a number of trees floating down the river before their eyes, perhaps a few dead animals. Now, what would you have been feeling like at that point? But God's ways, you see, in situations like that are the way of detailed obedience. What did God say in verse 8? When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now what actually happened? Verse 15. Middle of verse 15. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. And the ark went on in front of the people. And there they stood in the middle of the Jordan. The water's totally cut off. That town, Adam, is about 17 kilometres upstream from Jericho. So there was a stretch of 17 kilometres of flooded Jordan River that became dry land so that the people could cross over opposite Jericho. Now you see, before that happened, no doubt they were perplexed, worried, terrified about how they could ever get across this impossible barrier. And now, well... They're walking across a dry riverbed and they realise that the covenant God of total authority, absolute power is with them because the Jordan has become dry land. It is an amazing miracle. You can't explain it in any other way. And the faith of God's people is greatly strengthened by this astonishing experience of God's grace and power. Now, what's all this got to say to you and me this morning? Well, friends, the God of Joshua chapter 3 is our God too. Surely this is written for our learning, as Paul said to the Romans, to stimulate and strengthen our faith and give us hope. One Christian chorus uh, puts it like this. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specialises in things thought impossible. He can do just what no other can do. Now, of course, in our Christian lives we face plenty of rivers that seem to us to be uncrossable. What about the rising tide of anti-Christian feeling here in South Africa? We know that's happening. But most of the time, don't we dismiss the possibility of a massive work of God the Holy Spirit waking people up? Don't we do that? I wonder, as we do, if we 
truly believe in our hearts that our God is the Lord of all the earth today just as he was in Joshua 3? Or what vision do we have for our church fellowship here at St Barnabas? I wonder if we secretly say in our hearts that it's actually impossible for this little group of people to make a significant impact on the communities in which we live and work for God and for the Gospel. But if that's true, if that's what we think, can we say that we believe that our God is the God of Joshua 3? And what about in our own Christian lives? You know, we know, don't we, that God's purpose for us is that we should be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that we should become increasingly like the Lord Jesus. But if we're honest before God this morning, don't we have to admit that there are still so many things in our lives that seem to be impossible Jordans between what we're like now and what we know God wants us to be. The sinful habits that we can't seem to shake off. Um, the besetting sins that we give into a time and time and time again. And isn't it the truth that often the little things are the biggest barriers. Is that right? The critical spirit, the unloving attitude, the acid tongue, an oversensitivity that shows itself in self-pity, an over-readiness to fight for my rights. Or perhaps uh, it's an unwillingness to get up and do anything at all for God. A stubborn refusal to put myself out for the Lord and for other people. Now friends, these are all Jordans separating us from where God wants us to be. And of course, for some people, it's the Jordan of unbelief. We've stopped believing that God really can change us. So what's the answer? I mean, is God still interested in the impossible? You know, I think it's true, isn't it, that so often when we face a particular Jordan River in our own lives that we're so busy looking for wood to build a raft to get ourselves across, we've stopped looking for God to do a miracle. But you see, the ark in Joshua chapter 3 is the symbol of God's presence. And that means for us it's the symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today it's through him that God still does amazing things. And I want to ask you, do you believe that this morning? Do you? See, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, if it is his will and if he's calling me to do it, then I can do it. Because if he's called me to do it, that means he's equipped me for it. He wouldn't call me otherwise. He'll give me all the strength, all the resources that I need to obey. So when he calls us to share our faith with other people, he isn't calling us to do something that he won't enable us to do. When God says that he wants us to pray that in our generation of desperate nominalism and spiritual drift, that he wants us to pray that the Holy Spirit will come in power to Cape Town, he isn't saying that to mock us. He means it. God does amazing things for people who submit to him who consecrate themselves to him, who obey his word. And this morning, friends, God is calling us to have faith, to look at him, not the river. He wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, not the Jordan, not Jericho, Jesus, and to put our ark, the Lord Jesus Christ, between us and whatever impossible barrier we might be facing this morning, and by faith in him, to cross trustingly in order that we might experience everything that God is wanting for us in our Christian lives. You see, for Israel, Jordan was just the beginning. Jericho was just two hours' march down the road. So getting across the Jordan, that's just the start. There's a whole pilgrimage ahead. But if we put Jesus first, and if we lean on him every day and trust him and his inexhaustible resources, can I tell you that there are no impossible barriers to the will of God being done in our lives and in this church. Joshua 3 proves it. Bethlehem proves it. Calvary proves it. Easter Sunday proves it. God is waiting to do amazing things among us. Let's have a moment of quiet. Let's just take a moment silently in our hearts to praise God for his unstoppable power and grace. And then 
consciously, in the quietness of our hearts, bring to him all the impossibilities in our lives this morning. Let's lay them out before him and apply his word to our situation. thank you that you always hear us and we thank you that you speak so powerfully to us through these events of history in which you demonstrated and proved your power and grace your mighty arm to rescue and save and you have taught us that you are the same yesterday today and forever And so we give to you the impossibilities we're facing this morning. We give to you our country in all its desperate need. We give to you our city and our responsibility as Christian people to all those around us who are perishing. We give to you the people for whom we pray and for whom we care. We give to you the situations in which we find ourselves, in our families, in our work, in all our personal relationships, and in our innermost thoughts. Lord, you still specialise in things thought impossible. But we also know that you do it for people who submit for people who are consecrated, for people who are obedient. So Lord, forgive us for the many times when by our stubbornness we have prevented your amazing power from being demonstrated among us because we won't do those things. Lord, have mercy on us that we might consecrate ourselves afresh to you and live in daily, detailed obedience in accordance with your will so that your purposes might be fulfilled even in us. Lord, do amazing things in our lives, in our church, in Cape Town, in South Africa. Thank you for all that we already see of your power at work. And make us, we pray, into the people you want us to be. And we ask all these things in the name of our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said... 
Amen indeed.